Welcome to Launch Your Wealth. Jonah Lemons here, your podcast host, real estate entrepreneur, and a mom of six talented kids. I am so glad you are here tuning in as we make it across the globe. From Canada to the US, Germany, Norway, Australia, Singapore, Philippines, just to name a few. Today's episode is an interesting one because I get to speak with an actual mobile home park owner, operator, and lawyer. And as I have mentioned on my recent posts, how important and powerful it is to be on social media, especially networking and connecting with other professionals using LinkedIn. You see, I connected with Ferd because of mobile home park related topic. And in this case, he is wearing multiple hats, not only running a business, not only as a real estate investor and as a lawyer, he also has a family. Happily married with his wife, Angela, son, Anthony, daughter, Margaret, and daughter, Monica. You see, he is living a life of an entrepreneur and having this open conversation where we will uncover not only his expertise and what he is currently doing, but more importantly, how he got started. What was the mindset like? What was the setback? What was the lesson behind all of this? And I cannot wait to share that with you because this is all about business growth, launching your mindfulness, and uncovering, discovering, exploring, and growing in the real estate industry. So let's get started on this open conversation. I want to welcome you, uh, Ferd. I mean, so much to, to ask you about your niche, um, but also to congratulate you on your podcast. So, um, you know, tell us who Ferd is, you know, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, who I am, I don't know, I'm a father of three, uh, married to my lovely wife, Angela, we live here in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm a real estate investor, real estate attorney, uh, broker, focus on uh, mobile home parks. So I've got my own podcast, as you mentioned, the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. It's been going well the last several weeks, getting lots of traction there, but uh, really spent a lot of my time owning and operating mobile home parks. I've been in that space for about six years, been a real estate investor for about 10, real estate attorney for about seven, and I've practiced law, I've done retail development, uh, MHP, financial analysts, really just anything real estate, soup to nuts I've been involved in county government, county appraiser, and just like, I like to read, I like to focus on real estate problems and uh, it's been fun. Well, when we, when we initially connected, you know, you mentioned being a dad and sort of, you know, the juggling acts that we all do, because I'm a parent as well. You know, I'm just curious, how did you navigate all of these things before COVID? I'm just curious what you were doing before this, this whole thing happened. You know, COVID has not changed my life too much, believe it or not. So my wife stays home with our kids, so that helps a lot. So, and I, when I work from home, I go, I, I work from here most of the time. I'm on job sites several days a week looking at projects. But as far as uh, I used to work, you know, long commute and I used to work long hours at a law firm, but then, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go out on my own, do development on my own, do legal stuff on my own. So it's been pretty good. Um, pre-COVID, post-COVID, from a business perspective, you know, collections are down a little bit, but not too bad. But really, are it's almost been worth it, really, because the asset prices are gone have gone up. So even though NOI net, net operating income is down, the the asset values of all of our mobile home parks 
are higher because of macroeconomic forces, people coming into this asset class, recognizing the, the overall stability and really the, the strength of MHP relative to other asset classes. So I think everybody's taking a little bit decrease in NOI, but some asset classes taking a ton. So overall COVID, you know, aside from health impacts, obviously to, to people, you know, it, from a business perspective, I think it's been good for us. Lifestyle hasn't changed. Uh, you know, like you said, it's, I think it's just continuing forward and you're, you're in a niche that I'm excited about because, you know, I've never really looked at it that way until, you know, probably two months ago. And I actually happened to connect with somebody eight months ago that was in this space. However, they weren't doing it in, in this level where, you know, you're pretty much doing many different hats, actually, you know, your expertise is just so impressive. And I'm not saying that to, to kind of make it sound like you have to be furred to do any of this. Um, you know, I think, I think being, you know, being on this podcast is really to open the conversations, you know, and I kind of wanted to, to, you know, kick it off by saying, you know what, the market is changing, you know, money is changing, we've got all sorts of stuff happening. And I can say, because right now I'm based in LA, so we can see a little bit of a, a difference compared to where you're at perhaps, or maybe there's no difference. I think it's just an ecosystem that we want to build around us. So, you know, uh, you know, let, let's get to, to some of the questions I'd love to ask you. And, and, and if, if, you know, if you want to oblige me on that, okay. you know, um, when was the aha moment? You know, when you decided you were going to be going in this career direction in real estate, being an attorney, you know, doing all of those things that you just mentioned, um, you know, everybody that's sort of maybe tuning in going, well, I don't have that kind of, you know, experience or expertise, or that's not what I studied. You know, what's your take on that and how you can encourage someone to take a look at this niche and, and perhaps have their money work for them as well? You know, it, it, whether they're investing passively or going into this business. Sure. So back in 2014, I was a commercial real estate analyst at Jackson County here in Kansas City, and I was looking at lots of real estate deals, kind of complex tax incentive projects, mixed use, multifamily retail. And I saw the kind of returns the, the developers were making, and, I, and it wasn't as impressive as I thought. You know, I was making higher percentage return on, you know, single family stuff, but obviously, you know, single family is a lot smaller. I was like, okay, I can't scale this. I'm not working on a five, 10, $50 million project. These are you know, $100,000 projects. So I thought, what, what else can I jump into that's got a you know, better profitability, but it's also bigger. And I, I identified mobile home parks as having the lowest expense ratio uh, and for multifamily. And I thought, well, that means there's the highest profitability ratio. And then there's all kinds of kind of core dynamics associated with that asset class. I was like, I should look into this. So back in 2014, got in, I still had a regular job. And then I was at Jackson County as the county appraiser. Then I went to work with a law firm for about three years practicing. And then I, and really the kind of aha moment to really jump into this more full time was I think 2018. I made more money on MHP on the side than I did practicing law. So I was like, why am I working? Wow. <laughs> why am I working 60 hours for the firm and 20 hours for me when I could, when I, when I just work, you know, less than 80 and why don't I work just for me? So really kind of took more entrepreneurial role 2018, 19, 20, and then I've just been focusing on my own projects. And then the last two, three months. I mean, last year I didn't practice much law. I didn't really care to, but the last two, three months I saw asset prices going through the roof on MHP because of all the new private equity groups and real estate investment trusts get in the space. And I said, man, I've got all this operational IQ and, and, and business acumen and legal knowledge in the space. I can't compete on price with somebody that's got, you know, can buy a three cap property with cost. But you know what, maybe they need a lawyer. 
And I looked around and I didn't see any other lawyers in this field. And I was unaware of anybody else that had the operational experience that I had that also was a real estate lawyer. So I thought, let me launch this podcast and, and see if I can get my name out there and, and grab 10, 20, 50% of the market share. And it's been working really well, um, too well. So I got to slow down a little bit. So I'm looking to bring on a few folks to help here this month and next month because this podcast is going well and the legal business has been, been really good to me as well. But I, I still own my own projects. I've got three parks under contract to purchase personally. So I'm, I'm still going to be doing a combination um, of third party stuff and for my own account. So really it was, you know, your aha moment was how you were working those hours, right? So we talk about financial freedom, time freedom, and then you're kind of reassessing back, like, where's my career at? So did that, were you always entrepreneurial? It, it, you know, did you ever think about, you know, eventually you'll go into business for yourself? Was that an easy take? You know, of course, now you have your podcast and it does look like your, your, your trajectory is like amazing. Like, you know, I'm, sh I'm sure you're getting a lot of private messages for, for this niche. It's exciting. So, you know, definitely it's, it's very unique. You're, you're the way you're, you're kind of, you know, posturing, the name, you know, MHP, right. Lawyer. Right. Okay. So, I mean, was that always something that you thought, Hey, I'm going to go into this entrepreneurial venture. I just don't know when. And, and somebody no, that's struggling right now, you know, they're kind of you're torn apart. They're like, do I make a transition? You know, I've got a really good job, whatever that job may be, or I'm really interested to kind of get in this business path and, and maybe it's time. So, you know, how was that like for you to, to think? Yeah, about? I mean, I, I always had an entrepreneurial bent. I mean, I mean, from like mowing grass as a kid. I mean, that's, that was like going door to door. I mean, I was doing my own thing. And I, you know, I went, what did the, you know, did the standard path I went and got, you know, an undergraduate degree and postgraduate degrees and said, okay, let's go to college, let's get a regular job. But I always knew I wanted to do something else. So for my, you know, I was 22, I started doing single family houses on the side, you know, I was in grad school and like, okay, I'm going to, I'll have my job, but also have my investment. So that was the plan. So I think that was the, the path I took, I felt like was the most prudent where I was, I'm going to start, you know, kind of in your garage, you know, build, take, building your trinkets or whatever it is. And then in my case, it was flipping houses or buying single family rental houses and just do that on the side and kind of have two, two paths of income and not be as, as stuck to my desk. So that, that was always the game plan. I feel like starting off on the side, like a side hustle was, was more risk averse, especially mm -hmm. some, I didn't have a family at the time and stuff. So it was easier to do that. But I mean, I just gave up other hobbies, you know, I quit watching TV. I threw my TV away. I didn't watch an, an inch of TV or a snap, snap of football or a, a pitch of baseball for over five years. I mean, just you, like, you really like literally close the doors and you're like, I'm going to have to, I gave it. my TV away. I was like, I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I started reading books, you know, I started reading, I don't know, two books a month uh, after hours, you know, and then all of them were nonfiction, real estate, leadership, personal development, and just, just I, I learned more. I think I read 25 books during my MBA year. I learned more in those books than I did in five years of college, you know, so, and then later I got the law education, just kind of put it all together, you know, real estate, finance, law, entrepreneurialism, like there's, there's some opportunities to be made with that, with that pedigree. So I was like, let's, let's go for it. And it's been working out really well. So God bless. Wow. I like that. You threw your TV, you took all <laughs> these books and read, you know, Two, two a month, that's pretty good. I mean, for considering, you know, we have a busy life, right? So I like how you, you said that you learned more from doing that than what you had expected learning in college. I think that's a hot topic right now too, you know, with a lot of the grads, you know, coming out and COVID hit them, right? So you're right. thinking, my gosh, you're 21, 22, 24, 
And you could be in your thirties and going, you know, what have I done the past 10 years? Mind you, I do have TVs at home. <laughs> None of us watch. We're sort of like you. We're like, we're just so busy with doing things that move us forward. And I think that's a good, you know, kind of personal insight. We're not suggesting you have to throw your TV. That's not what we're saying here. We're, we're kind of talking about, you know, how working on that mindset really takes you to the next level. Did you feel when you were investing in single family residence, um, you know, investment properties compared to what you're doing now, what was it big? Was it a, a big deal? Like the difference that you saw? Like, was it like more on the money side? Or is it more like on the time freedom? Well, well mobile home parks are considerably more active management. So people, a lot of times people say it's all passive investing. If you buy a stabilized park and pay a premium for it, yeah, you could probably have pretty passive, but MHP, you know, I mean, I'm working, I've got several employees and dozens of independent contractors that work with me and we're all working 50, 60, 70 hours a week. So it's, it's a very active business. We're buying more infill projects and more flips and then rougher, rougher projects versus when I was doing single family, I mean, when I, I sold them all a couple of years ago, I, I was probably working two hours a week on single family. So it was single family was, was a lot easier, but it wasn't, the, the yield was considerably less and the upside was less. It's like, great. You buy a $120,000 house, you rent it out. And one day you sell it for 130 versus a single, a single mobile home park. You can change the valuation a you know, million dollars in a year or two. And, and that's just, and that's not even the big parks. In some parks you probably do tens of millions a year. So there's, there's forced appreciation in mobile home parks because you can add occupancy. Or like if I got a if I got a duplex, it's pretty impossible to turn it into an eightplex. Mm -hmm. But I could buy, you know, a mobile home park that's twenty percent occupied and fill it, and then you get four or five x, you know, even at the same expense ratio, even at the same uh, gross rental rate per per lot. There's just a lot of upside. Um, it's a lot of effort. So it's I'm not a passive investor by any means. I'm I'm mean, I'm in boots and jeans on the job site every single week. Um, roll up the sleeve yeah roll up yeah. that sleeve yeah. yeah i think i saw some of your posts where you were kind of sharing that and i and i was like wow like this is you know like there's no glamour in it right it sounds glamorous <clears throat> oh i'm an investor right <clears throat> but really it's not a, a glamorous thing the behind the scenes you know since we're talking about this maybe take us through what are the do's and don'ts that you would recommend if someone is interested to actively invest in mobile home parks well, I think first you got to figure out, are you going to be the, the general partner slash, you know, the promoter versus limited partner? So I mean, the, the, the passive investing, the, you know, the, the luxury of it, I have investors that that's their, that's their jam. Like I have some investors that have never even looked at the property. It's like 20 miles from them. They're like, yeah, whatever. I'm sure you got it handled. Okay. So for them, it's passive, right? That's what they've chosen. For, for me, like, you know, there's days I'm like, I'm glad I have pepper spray because that pit bull is, is off this chain coming at me. You know, I'm like, I'm going to get, get eaten here. Right. So, I mean, as far as what you got do's and don'ts, I mean, first figure out what's your, what's your role is in the, in the company. Is it limited as a general? And then you just kind of look at, you know, what kind of project can you tackle? I mean, financially, like your first project, like for me, I couldn't tackle a $10 million project. Okay. And I couldn't, and I didn't want to tackle something 10 hours away either. So you got to look at geography, you got to look at size and you got to look at, you know, what level of risk you want to take. So in the mobile home park space, you could, the, the more risky elements are things like private utilities, like a lagoon sewer system, water well system, where you're a water provider. So that's riskier, with potentially more upside. You generally, typically can buy those, you know, at a higher capitalization rate, which is a lower, lower reflective price. So really just look at those, um, size, location, and then are you looking for something stable? Are you looking for something that's a, that's a major turnaround? And 
I think it'd be pretty hard to do a major turnaround while you still have a full-time job. So getting started, maybe do a small one or a light turnaround if you're going to have a regular full-time job. Leave the big turnarounds to people that are doing it as their profession. So that's kind of what I'm doing now is, uh, you know, buying some more bruised and broken parts and, and, you know, having some people on my team too and uh, tackle the bigger, the bigger headaches, if you will. Um, but I would just figure out what you're, what you're good at and what you, what you, what your risk tolerance is, what your workload tolerance is, your financial capacity. And then as part of the financial elements, determine if you're going to go it alone or bring on a business partner, whether it's a, another general partner or if it's a limited partner, it's like a capital player. And then, that becomes more complicated from a math problem because you got to split the pie, but it allows you to tackle some projects that financially you otherwise may not be able to. What was that, you know, maybe emphasize on that a little bit. You said, you know, I'm not going to tackle anything within 10 million if I'm just getting started. What was your range uh, geographically or, or, you know, well, I think, wise? Yeah, and, I mean, I, price wise? I think price-wise, it was probably looking for anything from two hundred and fifty thousand to one point five million, and that's generally a reflection of lots. The first one that we bought was six hundred ninety-five thousand, but it was a good deal. I got a I got a hundred percent loan on that, so I took zero. Nice. I, I had I think I had like eighty or ninety thousand dollars available, and used that eighty or ninety thousand to buy five park-owned homes, fix them up, move them in, renovate them. And then sell them, and then use the same ninety thousand dollars to do twenty houses. Just regurgitated them, and then did it over four years. So I didn't need a half million bucks to get going. It would have been hard to do that project. I guess if I only had five thousand, but there were definitely, uh, and that was in my hometown. And my dad was doing it, you know, mostly full time, overseeing contractors and stuff like that. So you know, I had a bit. I was still working as a lawyer. Uh, or I think it was before, even before that, I was at Jackson County. So he was doing more heavy lifting. He was taking a salary and when we were 50-50 partners on the ownership side. So that was just how we got started. I mean, geographically, I was looking for something in that town, which is nowadays is a lot harder. So now, you know, I'm, I've got five or six states that I prefer to, in the Midwest that I prefer to invest in, but I'm looking at a couple of deals right now out of that footprint. Um, and I've got clients that have property out of that footprint where and sometimes they'll ask me to be the manager or be a partner and you know, it's also, depending on the location, like that's not feasible for me. I'm not, I'm not going to be as good of a manager in Florida. I'm not, it's not in our budget to send me there and I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be there every Tuesday. So my role is different in that sort of, in that sort of transaction. Well, th those are good points because I think, you know, you kind of know where your niche is and do, do you believe that um, creating that niche as a business, as an investor, is it any different when you're closing deals? Like you mentioned about the loans, right? Is that taking it on on your own or do you have syndicated partners or is it just you and your dad? Like, what would you recommend for somebody building up this business <coughs> and, and, and they're just getting started, whether they start a podcast or they brand themselves or they're working with, you know, one or two other partners, like what would be your best, you know, take on that? Like what you want them to kind of take a look at perhaps. Yeah, I, I would I recommend doing first the first part of the project by yourself. I mean, if you can financially, if you can't, maybe you have to do an assignment of your interest or you have to bring on a capital partner. But it's hard to do a syndication out of the gate because you don't have the experience who's going to invest money to you. It's got to yeah. be a really good deal. I mean, I, even when I was doing my single family, I used to you know change the locks, fix the steps, fix the gate, paint the house, mow the grass, show the houses, take the calls, meet the plumber. 
I was doing, you know, keeping the books. I was learning the property management business, but at some point, you know, how to do it. And like, okay, now it's just practice. I don't need practice. And then I got to hire better use of my time from a, from a dollar per hour standpoint. So then I, now I do less and less. Um, so, but, but I know how, so then same thing with an operations. Like I know how to, you know, set up a mobile home. I know how to, what the concrete specs are. I know what the permitting requirements are. Right? I know how to sell them. I know how the banking works for the exit strategy for a tenant, all that stuff. But it's not the best use of my time to be showing mobile homes. So I've got managers that do that. And I'm definitely not the best use of my time to be mowing the grass. But I mean, every once in a while, I like to drive the loader. We've got a skid steer, we put in gravel driveways. I like to drive it just for, for stress relief once in a while. Go listen to music and be like, I'm going to go play on the loader for an hour. And it's, I realize it's not, I could hire somebody to do that for $12 an hour, but I, cho- I choose to do that once in a while. Uh, I haven't done it in six months, but I, 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 you know, every once in a while I do. <laughs> and it's been busy lately, but I, I should get back out there. But so anyway, that, so there, I think learning, that learning how to do that, and I also get some credibility when I'm out there in boots and jeans, I'm driving the loader, my tenants, you know, respect me a little more. My, my employees respect me a little more. I'm not just sitting here in my suit, you know, with a crazy billable hour because, you know, people you know a lot of people work for you they just they don't have the same opportunity educationally so they don't have the same financial wherewithal so you know i do legal work for free all the time for my employees because like if I, they all pay you i'm like you don't know how much this is going to cost you know, <laughs> like, it, it makes it awkward you know I right a, right I lady today it was a, it was a half an hour i'm like i'm not going to charge you half an hour because i you know Right. But anyway, that's um, I think getting, getting down to the trenches is, is what uh, makes you a better operator, irrespective of the business you're in. So really getting that firsthand, roll up your sleeves, build your momentum getting in, 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 this, in this space, in this niche. I mean, as far as financing, though, is that something that you feel you should be financing yourself first? You know, I, most I, people I mean, say I, OPM, I, right? Okay. I, think so. I think so. I think so. But if, if you can't, you can't, right? Um I mean, I still do deals just me, and I've done some syndication, but you know, the last couple of deals has been me and my dad. I've got three deals now. I'm going to have partners on all three, so just it, it's each their own, and each deal is their own. And but I mean, sometimes you need partners because for whatever reason, sometimes you have the option. And but I think getting started on your own, if you can, is better. I mean, starting smaller. I mean, get you know, there's something different about signing the note. You know, I mean. Um, I used to Being on that paper, right? Being yeah, I used to do retail development and I had a business partner who was very wealthy. So the bank was making us tens of millions of dollars of loans, but it was doing it based on his credit, not mine. Mm. Um, I couldn't pay back $10 million of loans, you know, in an instant where he could. So, but I had to sign the note still. So I would sign prorata for my share and he'd have to sign 100%. So the bank had additional coverage, but he, you know, he's like, you're, you'll work harder when you're on the note. You'll, you'll want it, you'll sweat a little more. You'll, you'll worry a little more. Right. And, and Keep you on your toes. It's true. So, I mean, the guys, the guys that syndicate and don't sign a note and don't put any of their own capital in, I would just be more leery of them. Not that they're all bad people, not that they don't have upside motivation, but there's just, there's just something to be said. I mean, and I know it's true because I'm trying to get a non-recourse loan right now for one of my properties. And my bank's like, why do you want a non-recourse loan? I go, because there's the two horse town, two, two factories. He said, if they close down, I don't want to lose a half a million bucks. I want you to lose a half a million bucks. And he's like, exactly. <laughs> I go, I know. So I'm being honest. But I want to spit the hook on the recourse. Cause I, cause if the deal goes south, I'll be like, well, at least I got most of my money out. Here's the keys back, you know, versus mm-hmm. if the recourse loan, I'm going to fight a lot harder. So I think it's, I think it's good to start with the recourse loans and start your own capital mm-hmm. because you'll just approach it differently. 
Right. The, the sense of accountability. Now, we, when you're looking at a, a deal, like take us through that, you know, since, you know, we're, we're on this topic of, of, you know, looking at your first deal. I'm, you know, I'm just pretending I'm, I'm kind of like that. I'm, I'm the investor. I'm interested in this space. How do you do your pre-due diligence when you look at, or may I say, well, first, what, what are the elements of the pre-due diligence? Well, I mean, the, the, the first due diligence is just the, you know, geographic. Is it, do I, if it's like, I see deals every single day. I'm like, okay, this one's in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't even been to Mississippi. I'm not going to invest in Mississippi. So I just, that one doesn't work. But then I saw one yesterday. It's like, it's in Pittsburgh, Kansas. I was like, that's four hours away from me. I, I know that town. I actually did some retail work there. It's not a big town, but it's, it's, it's kind of a small town. But it's not too small. So I'm like, okay, geographically, it's close enough to home. It's in a state that I like. It's in a city that's got a Home Depot, got a, got some retail. So they've got some kind of national panache that there's some jobs there. So like, okay, I'm looking at that. Now let's see what the pricing is. And then yeah, just there's some really quick formulas you look at. I mean, it's as simple as number of lots occupied times monthly lot rent times 12 months. That's your gross income. And then you multiply that by your net operating income ratio, which in industry-wide is 60% of tenants, uh, if the landlord pays the water and 70% of tenants pay the water. So if this is a tenants pay the water, I'll say that gross income times 0.7 and I just divide it by a cap rate. And cap rate is subjective. It's based on market factors, but also your own, some subjective nature of condition of the park. And I'll say, okay, if, if I, I'm gonna call, call it an 8% capitalization rate because it's, you know, small town, it's not as good. I'm not gonna pay a premium, but it's okay state, it's close, eight. And then I say, okay, whatever the value is, if that comes out at a million dollars, I'm gonna look at what the price is. If the price is $3 million, I'm probably not gonna waste any time on it because it, my general quick 30 second opinion is so far off from the sellers. But if the if I think it's a million and the seller's got it for sale for a million too, like, okay, we're close. Now I'm gonna dig a little deeper. So I'm gonna start to look at a more granular level and do some financial modeling, look at a number of different ratios and metrics. And just really get to know the market, the trade area and really get to know the numbers. And then eventually you're going to do things like get third party reports, like a survey, a phase one environmental appraisal, get a zoning letter, review the permit and review the seller's books, personally inspect the property and 50 other little tasks. But there's, you know, there's 10 or so big tasks that you want to make sure passes, passes muster before you, you know, get, I mean, I like to have it pass the, the free tests like basic economics, market tests, you know, do I, do I run a sample ad? Does it hit the right number of calls? That kind of stuff to then get excited about it before I go out there and start spending money on third party reports. Cause you quickly spend 10 or 15,000 bucks. I don't want to do that. If it was, if it, if it was going to fail that nobody wants to live in that town, you know, so that's just how that's kind of some preliminary due diligence. And then it gets more complicated after that, as far as looking at utility lines and, you know, doing doing home inspections and things like that, but um, measuring the size of the lots is really important if you're going to bring in homes, because old homes, old lots are smaller than today's inventory. So you want to make sure, and you you put that as coupled with the zoning restrictions and setback restrictions of the municipality, and just try to uh, fully assess the deal and you know, continually poke assumptions, and then and then start to put together financial modeling if I want to bring in partners or not, which I might know from the outset based on the price, um, if, it's, if it's too big, then I know many partners. If it's not too big, well, then I can evaluate if I want partners. This is this is before you decide you're gonna express an offer to the owner. Some of that, I, I'll do some of that first before the offer, but I mean, I may make an, I'll make, a, sometimes I'll make an offer without having seen the property. 
Mm -hmm. It's generally not as effective. The sellers don't like it as much. So if it's, if it's close, I'll go drive the property. But if it's, you know, four hours away, I'd be like, let's see if we're in the ballpark before I get in the car and drive four hours. Right. So it's just knowing, you know, which ones you go for initially to do that. I mean, what are the potential, you know, uh, issues or challenges that you see or have seen um, if somebody is going through a pre-due diligence and they spend the money on third-party services to kind of, you know, formulate what they do decide, what are some of the potential legal uh, issues that can happen with sellers and potential buyers? Have you ever seen that? Because I know I've had some experience on that, like from a buy and sell, but I know maybe, you know, the MHP uh, market may be a bit different, um, sure, you know, I mean, just residential, you know? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's lots of potential legal issues. I mean, seller misrepresentation is one. But then not only that, but the seller did not notify you something they did not know was there. I got a report, I got a phase one report today and it came back and there was a well on the property. It was like the seller didn't tell me there was a well, it's an abandoned well, but it wasn't closed properly. So now we have to close the well because it's a recognized environmental condition. So that's a, you know, it's a $5,000 problem just popped up. You know, we had a septic system. The, se the seller did represent the septic worked. Well, we got a septic inspection. It doesn't work. It's a $10,000 problem, okay? Different property I'm under a country for, the seller represented there were 24 paying tenants. We asked for a rent roll. He still represents there are 24 paying tenants. We asked for the bank records. There are, there's an amount of money being deposited in August and September that would reflect 12 paying tenants. So we have a problem, okay? So, so there's those, so that can, is that legal? Well, that's business problem. But if you could, am I gonna sue over it, but I could drop my, I could drop my contract. Say so I'm not going to close. That's, that's that's a substantial change in the valuation. Other legal issues. I mean, there's things like zoning, code violations, permit permit challenges, um, issues with you know to providing water sewer and being a utility provider. Um, surveys. I mean, there's there's things like title issues, encroachment issues, um, government hostility to you that you know for grandfathering and things like that. Um, what about from a lending, from a lending standpoint? If yeah, I mean, lend, the lenders are not really as much legal issues. The legal, I mean, they're, they're practical. I mean, lenders will require often like a lender's title insurance policy. Sometimes you need to get a survey endorsement, a zoning endorsement as a supplement to your title policy. I mean, the, there are lenders, there are a lot of local bank lenders out there for smaller projects, bigger stabilized projects can get CMBS loans or Freddie, May, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae loans. So they have other, those documents are complex at times, but they're not, you don't really do a lot of legal negotiating on them because they don't let you. They're like, here's our template document, sign it or don't. Versus sometimes on a smaller bank, you can negotiate certain provisions. And then there's obviously stuff like the, the deal terms you can negotiate at the time. There's like interest rate and percentage down and collateral requirements and, you know, level of recourse or like I've got one project now where I'm going to partner with somebody 50, 50. So I didn't, and I had the, I had the bigger, balance sheet out of the two of us. So I knew if there was ever a problem, the bank was gonna come after me, not him. So I negotiated with the bank that I only have to sign 50% of the recourse. And then he's got to sign 50% of the recourse. So that's, is that legal? Is that business, financial, some combination? I mean, I understand it better than most because I've read the contracts and I have a legal background, but that's more businessman decision than a, than a legality. So sometimes I get brought in to help on that stuff. Sometimes I just do the basic blocking and tackling of contracts, leases, bill of sale, assignment of leases, closing documents. And a lot of times I get brought in on cases just to do operational stuff. You know, how do you get my retailer's license? How do I, you know, 
hire and fire personnel? You know, what kind of manufacturers do, should I do? How can I test the market? So on. So uh, I try to be the Swiss, Swiss Army knife for my clients, and and if they want me to plug in me plug me in somewhere, I'll do it and go from there. I mean, it sounds it sounds like it. You know, you're kind of a, a cowboy. You know, for all right. Um, you know, pe people ask me sometimes, you know, like, you know, when you're working with private lenders and you're, you're working on a, you know, residential is completely different. Multifamily is also very different. Um, you know, I guess my question would be, do you, what do you think, or do you think that someone that's getting in there, yes, they're going to get a, uh, you know, a funding done and, and, you know, they found this amazing deal. Just giving an example, by the way, um, you know, and they go in there and they, they start to tackle, you know, they're ready to roll up their sleeves. Um, what would be your take on, you know, for them to, to actually go all in? I mean, do you, would you advise that they go, you know, go on it by themselves or work with other people that's done it before? Like kind of like a mentor, you know, we, we see that going around, right? Like right. mentorship or, or coaching or be in this group of like-minded. Um, you know, your take is a bit different too because you're an attorney. So your, your level of understanding could be a little bit more in depth than somebody just getting into it. But what's your take on that? No, nothing, you know, um, major, but just seeing your opinion on that. Yeah, I think the mentorship is a good is a good way to jump in. Um, I get a because I get a lot of people call me that are that are it's their first deal, and I'm and it's not always my role to tell them how broken their business plan is. But sometimes I'll be like, "Are you sure you want to buy this at this price in this location from where you're at?" And I mean, I'm, I'm telling them like, "You need to reconsider this." And so yeah, I think having a mentor would be a good idea. Yeah, I have the luxury of financial and legal background where it wasn't scary for me but i have i mean i get i see contracts i see deals that are so junior varsity that i'm just like you're gonna get your lunch um you gotta you know watch out watch out so yeah i think the is a way to go i mean that's what i did i had a great mentor at the law firm where i learned lots of zoning and real estate related law um i had a mentor in retail you know business partner more than a mentor um, but I learned a lot as far as how to evaluate stuff, and, you know, bank relationships, how to, how to negotiate with the lender, how to negotiate with the seller, lease, how your leases work, how guarantees work, things like that. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to just tackle it on my own if I was if I was new to, any, to anything, really. I mean, the, the catch there is get the good mentor or partner. And it's hard to do. It's hard to find somebody you can trust because if you're the mentee, you're probably going to not have control. And... You know, forty-nine percent interest is worth zero percent of the vote. You know, I, I had a business partner where I was uh, I was ten percent, he was ninety, and we were doing these big retail projects. And I I quickly found out that ten percent meant zero percent of the vote, and, <laughs> and that's not a good position to be in. So, like, I don't personally now I don't sign any recourse unless I have fifty percent control. So that's I a get people. Point. Uh, yeah. I regularly get people say, "Hey, you want to be our partner on this?" I'm like. I can't really be that effective at raising capital because I don't really, if I don't have control, I'm not that jonesed about it myself. And you didn't ask me to take half the deal. Cause so uh, I made it probably better to be your lawyer on this one than you pay me by the hour. Um, because, but sometimes this guy, I got another little guy right now. He's like, yeah, take half. So I'm half part of this guy and I'm not charging legal fees and all that kind of stuff. So it worked, it's going to work out really well for him, but he lost half his deal. So, uh, but he was being more than mental. And I'm getting letting him in the tent and sharing documents and sharing processes and he comes to my office and sits next to me and learns stuff. So I think the mentorship program is a good idea. But mindset wise though, like if they're not in the right, or I guess, you know, 
present mindset, they're not going to seek for that mentorship. You know, it's kind of like a chicken and egg, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, there's, there's definitely some temperament, you know, constraints and challenges. I mean, um, you have to be humble to have to take on to be a, a mentee and to allow somebody to train you. Um, you have to be coachable and you have to be, you'd be trusting and subservient to some degree. So it's, it's I say, it may not be for everybody. Um, but I think it's if you're green academically in this care in the, in the in the business you're going into, I think it would behoove you to you know get a mentor. I mean, very, I mean, I remember hearing you know I'm a big Tony Robbins fan, and Tony Robbins talks about this one of his conferences. Love him. <laughs> yeah, and I think he told me in the I mean all of us in the history of the Olympics, there's only been one person who's not had a coach. It was like one sprinter, like 84 or something, that had like Tiger Woods had a coach. Michael Jordan had a coach and a strength trainer and a you know nutritionist and all that. It's like everybody, even the solo sports. I mean, even the, the wrestlers have a coach. The, the gymnast has a coach. Why is that? You know, the, you can you know they can help you see things. They can help you be a they can be a consultant. They have a different perspective. They can motivate you. They have a different knowledge. They may not be as physically gifted. But they, but you, they're helpful to you. So I think if that makes sense in sports, including things like wrestling, why would it not make sense in business? Even in the entrepreneurship route, right? Not everybody, sure. especially the the younger, uh, you know, generation now, it's a lot more out there. Like I remember from my time, you know, '90s and early 2000s, you wouldn't even hear the word entrepreneurship, right? It wasn't like, oh, you can do business without having to go to a four-year degree. Like that wasn't talked about then. Right. Okay. So, you know, what, what's your, you know, personal opinion on that? Like where we can lead, you know, those that, you know, are looking to enter the entrepreneurial world, whether it's in real estate investing or starting their own business in real estate, or even, you know, being a, a how do you say it, like a startup, <coughs> startup business um, in, in, in what they find, you know, the niche that, that they're good at coaching, mentoring, uh, sorry, coaching mentorship. I, I, hundred percent. I think everybody needs that, but it's not for everybody as well. Mm -hmm. Like they find themselves, Oh, I, I went into this program, but it wasn't for me. So, you know, it, it's kind of like a, a, an experience that you would have to have to get that aha moment. But what's your take on that with the younger people and, you know, thinking about this whole entrepreneurial path, the financial education, where we're at, you know, as a country, as a world, the global economy happening around us, um, you know, possibly the downturns from COVID, you know, where are you at in that? I mean, let's share that conversation because I'm sure, it, you know, maybe somebody will have an aha moment listening to this. Yeah, I think the entrepreneurship mentorship program would be helpful. I think it's challenging. There's, there's institutes like here in Kansas City, the Kauffman Institute has something like that. The challenge, and I've had a couple of people that have been mentees of mine in the gym. I've been a mentee of other people. I think the challenge is it's, it's like if I'm to train somebody, it's inefficient for me to do so. So I'm going to want some sort of loyalty or allegiance of sorts. So one guy, I trained him a bunch in retail, really nice guy, really sharp guy, did it for six months, you know, spent a lot of time. Like, hey, I'm going to teach you how to do this document, do this financial spreadsheet. I could do it myself in 20 minutes. I'm going to spend two hours teaching you on the hope that from now on, you'll save me 20 minutes every single time. Well, then he left, you know went back, went to grad school or whatever. And it was like, well, now I don't, I'm not getting anything out of that. So it should be a giving it, giving back portion for me. But the reality is if, if you look at your effective hourly rate, if my time is worth $10 an hour, $100 an hour, $1,000 an hour, if I'm 
donating it to this guy, I'm getting zero. So I'm essentially paying myself. My my billable rate is three fifty an hour. I'm essentially paying three fifty an hour to mentor you. So if you want, and if you want the mentorship to be substantive, it's not a once a week Thursday nights at seven thing. This is a day in day out job shadow mentorship. Well, now it's very expensive. It's like paying for training. It's very expensive for the mentor from an opportunity cost perspective. So you need, I think the way it works is if you have mentees that are willing to do some of the grunt work, willing to work, willing to take a reduced salary, kind of an internship, not, and not the old school internship where like, I'm, I'm working with an intern at the law firm and I'm filing papers and copier. Okay, like now I need to go sit in some meetings, things like that. But it's gotta be a win-win. And I feel like a lot of the mentees out there are like, I want to have your job, but I want to have it in two years. You know, where it's like I worked 80, 80 hours a week for a decade. You know, are you going to do that? You know, no. Oh, you want to you want to work thirty nine hours a week and make hundred grand when you're twenty three? No. So did I, but I worked eighty just to, to make sure. You know, and that's where I think the disconnect is, and that's obviously on a person by person basis. But I don't see a you know I don't see a lot of people willing to put in the put in the effort. Those are really good points because I was, you know, I was tuning in in some of the the mentoring programs out there, you know, kind of doing research and, and you made really good points. It's if you're asking for somebody to mentor you, it has to be a give and take. It's a win-win. So obviously billable hours for 350 per hour and you're mentoring someone and then suddenly two months later, they're gone. They decided to pursue something else. I think that's what I'm seeing where the challenge is with the younger generation um, and I think for people like us within this, you know, kind of um, within the, you know, same age uh, group, I think we've seen sort of rolling our, our sleeves and, you know, kind of getting dirty with whatever we needed to do to get through, you know, career development, job development, uh, college, you know, education, those things are not easy. I think now there's more options, right, for everyone that wants to do something. So they can access online education, you know, they can go to mentoring programs and pay X amount of dollars and maybe not do anything with it. Um, and that's the downside. So, uh, you know, where is this market headed, you know, in, in your opinion, like, what do we need to equip ourselves? I know you're on that side. And if you were to see yourself at 20, 21 years old, with everything you know now, would it have changed? Do you, you know, what would be your best take on what COVID looks like? And I, I'm not trying to emphasize on COVID, but I think there's going to be no, uh, n no more going back to the, to the norm, right? It's a new norm. So what, what is your take on that? How can we equip ourselves, you know, whether from the investing side, whether it's career development, whether, you know, launching your business, you know, in, in today's time, 2021, I would say. Yeah, I mean, a lot to unpack there. I mean, overall, I think entrepreneurialism can be more important going forward. Small business can be more important going forward. I mean, if I had to talk to my 21-year-old self, I would advise, you know, get an education in sales, get education in financial matters, and then work for somebody else as short and as little as you have to before you go out on your own. And I think it's hard to start as an entrepreneur, but... I think if you, you know, like I worked at Jackson County for five years. So I had five different jobs in five years and got a lot of different experiences. And, and, you know, I get a pension when I retire one day. Right. But I probably could have been there for two or three and, and they moved around three or four departments and got, and I was at the law firm for three years. I probably could have been there for one and a half or two. And then I worked retail for three years. I probably could have done retail development for 18 months. And then I could have been, 
you know, maybe I did 30 when I was able to go out of my own and have, you know, I have three degrees and I have three or four different careers and have all that packaged together and hopefully have a little hay in the barn to get started and then go launch my own. And, you know, then you can retire at 40 versus you start that at 40, you know, you're going to be working until you're 60. Um, if you don't start when you're 55, well, better than starting never, but it's harder, you know. And my dad, my dad worked, he had a job 25 years in the grocery business, 15 years in banking business and then became a real estate investor and he made more money each year the last several years that he made in his whole career before that and had more fun and loves the job more and works from home and works on job sites and you know he didn't start that until he was almost 60. You know, he was 55 and it's like that's a long time to wait but that was the older generation too there's there some fruits to that to being um you know lo loyal to an employer but as far as i was giving advice to myself i would say get out on your own as soon as you can take the risks and and bet on yourself so make the mistakes earlier on rather than waiting when you're in your 50s and 60s yeah i i mean I never probably work. agree with that <laughs> yeah i mean i wish you know don't 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 get paid by the hour find a right. way from the beginning don't get paid by the hour and don't play video games don't watch tv and just learn and then you know i remember when i just got out of college a lot of i was reading books every night and my friends are going to the bar, my friends are playing trivia, you know, and, you know, video games and stuff. It was like, you're working 40 hours a week and I'm, I'm working 16 and learning 20 more. And, and that gives you 10 years to get 20 years experience. So really investing in yourself, right? right? There's no risk to that, you know, when you're sort of self-educating and then developing your career and jumping in there and make those mistakes. So since you're such a, a reader, what would be, you know, in closing, what would be your best or recent book that you would recommend for, for our viewers and our audience to, to check? Well, I mean, depends on what you're looking at, I get what you want to get into. I mean, anything from Tony Robbins is great. I've read all the Rich Dad Poor Dad books. So if you want to get real estate and you can be entrepreneurial, Rich Dad Poor Dad is a good one to kind of get the fire in your belly. Gary Keller's The Real Estate Millionaire is better from like a, a tactical um, standpoint on real estate. That's a really good book. If you're in the financial services model and you want to see how corrupt that can be in the financial services, read Money Master of the Game by Tony Robbins. Um, Dave Ramsey's got a good book on for leadership. I'm reading a book right now called Work Less, Make More. So those those come to mind. Let me think what else I got over here that's really good. Oh, if you're in sales, if you're in sales <laughs> Rainmaking Made Simple is a great book um, yeah. for business development. That's a great book. Um, yeah, is there such those, thing though? Is there such thing you mentioned? Work less, make more. <laughs> there is. Uh, there is. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. So I'm, I'm getting close, actually. I've got a couple things in the hopper that I'm going to roll out next year. Uh, like I just hired a guy. He starts next month. He's, I mean, he's a CFA, MBA, finance degree. And, and I'm, I'm, it's, he's not cheap, but I can pay him less than my effective hourly rate to practice law. And he'll take over financials for our investors and stuff. So he he can do um, you know he can do financial stuff just as well as I can, and he charges less than three fifty an hour. So I can work less, make more, and then I can if you can find some other attorneys to work under you, you can find get a business mousetrap. You know you can uh, hopefully take off some Fridays. You know things like that. Uh, so I'm I, I think, gonna I think it's I'm going to take your advice. Different revenue streams. Um, right. Yeah, there's different opportunities there for sure. 
Well, you know, I, I'm going to go to you for that, that advice right there. I need, I, you know, I'm going to need to do the same, right? To, to qualify those hours and put them in, you know, where it matters the most. And really it's time freedom. I think the financial path should lead us to that time freedom. And if it's not in our fifties or sixties, at least now, you know, in the next couple of years. And, and I think as investors and as entrepreneurs, there are opportunities, even though it seems so gloom, you know, with, with what's happening around the world. And it's not just the US and, and even Canada where, you know, I'm originally from, you know, there, every country has its own issues. And I think, you know, where it's headed as far as, you know, the, the economy, the real estate business, and, and, and being an entrepreneur, I think this is the best time, you know, to, to really kind of take a look at that. And, and those books that you recommended, I think some of it, I've, I've heard of it. I actually am tuning in um, Orrin Claff, Flip the, the Script. It sounds really cool. I was watching his, his uh, podcast interview about it, um, Atomic Habits, mm -hmm. uh, James Clear. So I'm excited to binge on that. And, and I think a lot of people that are aspiring or wanting to launch their business, there's tacticals or strategies or structure. So speaking to somebody like Ferd will help because I you're, you're the second attorney on my podcast. So very excited to, to kind of bring on that perspective and, and still show that you're, you know, you're an actual person. You're not just, <laughs> you know, writing up contracts and, and checking off the, the good stuff and Xing the wrong stuff. Right. So, um, you know, it, it was a pleasure to, to have this conversation with you for it. I mean, anytime, you know, hop on and, and let us know where we can find you as well. Aside from LinkedIn, I know you're active. Yeah. LinkedIn. Um, my website is www.themobilehomeparklawyer.com. My podcast is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. My email is ferd, F-E-R-D, at themhplawyer.com. Awesome. There we All go. Right, thanks for, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ferd. And there you have it. That was such a great open conversation. And getting to know someone like Ferd, who happens to be a multitasking entrepreneur. I mean, he launched his own podcast, the MHP Lawyer Podcast, that's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all of the social media outlets. So if you'd like to check it out and learn about the mobile home park industry, that's definitely a go-to place for that. And of course, if you'd like to find us and connect with us, we are actively engaging on LinkedIn. It's such a great opportunity to be able to connect, grow, and truly engage with everyone that we are coming across on that platform. So if you're a new entrepreneur or you're an enterprising business today, I am personally inviting you to check out Launch Your Wealth on LinkedIn. And of course, you can connect with me directly on Instagram. And of course, I'd love to invite you to check out Launch Your Wealth Inner Circle. You can find us on LinkedIn where we are now on a weekly virtual meetup where we discuss about business growth, personal and professional development, and of course, social media and anything and everything and beyond life, business, wealth, and empowerment. I want to make it about you. You are the top priority. And again, I thank you so much for tuning in. Without you, I would not be Launch Your Wealth podcast today.